So we've got a number one deluxe meal. Is there anything else I can get you? Yeah, I'd also like a good night's sleep. Excuse me, sir? You know, the I didn't struggle all night with my uncomfortable CPAP mask or something like the my wife didn't kick me out to sleep on the couch because of my constant tossing and turning. Sir, we don't have anything like that here. I think what you're looking for is Inspire. It's an implant that works inside your body to treat sleep apnea without a CPAP. That way you can breathe normally and rest more soundly. Come on! Oh, he sounds angry. Inspire is the only FDA-approved sleep apnea treatment of its kind. It's helping tens of thousands of people finally get restful sleep. To learn more, visit InspireSleep.com. That's InspireSleep.com. Inspire. Sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. Well, good morning. This is attorney Stephen Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Answer questions, giving out your advice on this beautiful Sunday. And here we go into another week of interesting legal news, topics, information, and of course, your calls. The number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. Now, uh, this is uh, 26 years I've been practicing law. And, of course, I bring all of that experience, knowledge, trial work, appellate work, zoning work, probate work to this show to make sure that you're informed of your legal rights every week. And, of course, answering your questions and giving out advice Hopefully, you never need a lawyer, but if you do, of course, that's what I'm here for. I'm your host of Legal Tips on WPRO, and the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776, 401-438-9776. Now, we have a host of topics today we're going to be getting into, and uh, you know this includes uh, a variety of issues, and you know the overarching theme today is uh, asserting your rights. <clears throat> Nobody wants to go through the process of actually beginning litigation. It's sort of like making the decision to go get surgery. If you really need it, then you can do it. But it's a last resort for most people. And and I feel the same way. You know, just throwing yourself into court isn't always the answer. It doesn't always work out with the result that you want. So the backup to that is trying to figure out what, when should you, when when are you required to assert your rights? And when don't you have to assert your rights? Well, first of all, Almost every state in the United States has uh, laws that pertain to timeframes, when you have to assert your rights. And these laws are sometimes called uh, statutes of limitation or limitations of actions, okay? And what it essentially means is that there's a period of time that the law says you can bring a case in court to seek relief. And if you don't do it within that period of time, there's the idea that, well, if you haven't done it in that amount of time, then most likely, you know, the issue resolved itself or it wasn't important enough to bring it. Now, I know that sounds a little counterintuitive because there are times that you would say, well, wait a minute, maybe I, you know, shouldn't I have more time? But these time frames were set, all right? And every state varies. For example, if you loan somebody, five thousand dollars 
and they promise to pay you back by August 1st, and they don't, you have 10 years in Rhode Island from August 1st to actually bring a civil complaint to try to collect the money. So that's a long time. And obviously that time period would be sitting uh, in every year that goes by, it ticks against you, except maybe you're going to be able to claim interest. But why is it 10 years on something like that and only three years on something like a personal injury case? Well, the idea behind it is that at the time somebody defaults on a note or a, a, a loan agreement, that they may not have the ability to make repayment within a year or two years. And uh, the idea is that the creditor should have enough time to enforce that contract when and if the other person has the ability to pay. So 10 years for a contract. Now, only three years for a personal injury. So a personal injury could be, um, and, and, you know, this is cases, I, I get these cases every year. I get boating accident cases every year. I get fireworks cases every year. Um, you know, and I work a lot with uh, folks who are also involved in automobile accidents or sometimes slip and fall accidents. Um, I work with an excellent medical malpractice attorney that we refer our cases to on that. But, you know, in this particular situation, three years. So here, here's a story. An individual calls me up, and he, he was a listener of this show, and he said, you know, Stephen, I went to this other law firm, and they just sent me a letter. And it says, your statute of limitations is three years, and your case isn't big enough to file a case, and therefore you have to go see another attorney. Now, this letter was sent eight days before the statute of limitations ran, which meant that once that three-year period ended, the insurance company closes their file, and you're never going to get a dime from anybody. So he said, what can I do? And I said, well, get, you know, get a copy of your file. Come in and see me. Came in very the, the next day with a copy of his file, and I reviewed it, and I said, no one's ever communicated with the other insurance company that a demand was made for payment. Why don't you let me find out what's going on? So I called the insurance adjuster. I sent a letter of rep. I called the insurance adjuster. So now we're about five days before having to file a case on this guy's uh, personal injury claim. And he was actually injured. He had a um, he had a torn rotator cuff. Um, it was a fairly significant car accident, too. But uh, for, for whatever reason, the insurance adjuster said, you know, no one ever reached out to me. And I said, really? And so then I started talking to the insurance adjuster. I said, well, what is your reserve on this case? What do you have? And she goes, well, you got to make an, an offer first. So I said, okay. So I call the client up and we, I go through all the medicals with him from what I could discern from the file. And of course, that's an extremely limited review because I like to do it myself. Uh, we make an offer. They actually accept the offer and we settle the case two days before the statute of limitations ran. And he ended up putting in his pocket a significant amount of money. And, and I think that Perhaps the place he went to was maybe too busy, or maybe maybe they truly felt his case wasn't worth bringing a civil litigation. But that three-year period was right on the deck. So other, other situations, if you need to appeal something, let's say you're in district court, you get charged with a disorderly conduct, and you don't like the decision of the district court judge after a hearing. 
you can appeal that, but you only have a couple of days to do so. The same thing with landlord-tenant. The same thing with probate appeals. If you're unhappy with what a judge does, you have 20 days to appeal. Same thing with zoning, 20 days. So these, all of these time frames go on the premise that if you sit on your hands and you don't act, you basically use or waive. So sometimes we hear that a lot, like when we're working for somebody, they'll say you get two weeks of vacation a year. It doesn't accrue. You use it or you waive it. And that means essentially exactly what it says, that you waive your right to that two weeks vacation if you don't use it. Now, there's other issues that go along with that. But the important thing is when to assert those rights. Very important to understand. One of the big areas that I've noticed that has been brewing in my practice has been having to deal with probate court appeals and people not appealing probate probate court orders that they're unhappy with. So probate court appeals or or on the other side of it, we see a lot of times I'm seeing a lot of issues with folks who are not either appealing what might be a landlord-tenant eviction, okay, timely, which means you have to do it in accordance with the rules, or even making appeals to a higher court, like, for example, to um, the Supreme Court. And so you say to yourself, why is that? Well, many times folks don't know what the time frame is, right? We, We uh, that's why you have an attorney to tell you that you have this time frame. And secondly, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, nervousness. You know, a uh, very recent case I was involved in, client came in and saw me and said, you know, they, they, they neighbor purchased this house about eight and a half years ago. After they purchased the house, they put a shed up and a fence. And they had lived in their home since since they were children. So the shed and the fence go up and they they don't think anything about it, but they say, let's get a survey. They get a survey seven years ago, and it shows that the fence in the shed is two feet onto their property. Well, if they wait another year and a half, that neighbor may have the right to claim adverse possession against their um, against their property. So waiting sometimes waiting too long to assert your rights can really have a detrimental effect and actually help the other side. And of course, the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776, 401-438-9776. We do have our first caller on the line, Beth from Exeter with a statute question. Hi, Beth. You're on the air with Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm calling because I had a a CMC arthroplasty surgery on my right thumb. It'll be three years ago this November. And um, I didn't have a good turnout with it. I got uh, scarring in the hand. I I got a second opinion from another doctor who I liked a whole lot better and wish I had gone to, who told me that he can't fix it and that they used a surgery that was about 10 years old on me. And it wasn't the best thing to do in my situation. Um, I've called a couple of attorneys, uh, but no, they all get back to me and just say, we're not going to take that one. Okay. And I I don't know where to go at this point with it. 
So the issue with medical malpractice, and I'll tell you, um, I I find it very unfortunate for folks. It's fortunate and it's unfortunate. We'll put it to you this way. When you believe a doctor has committed negligence, um, ordinarily, you need another professional to say they believe that there was negligence before you can actually prosecute your claim. So oftentimes that can cost a lot of money to get that type of opinion before somebody would say, yes, um, that person was negligent. And before somebody invests maybe five or $10,000 in an expert opinion, it's almost they want to be dead sure to rights that this is going to be a medical malpractice issue. Um, once your three years expires, okay, from the date you discovered the malpractice or the date of the injury, you're going to be forever barred. What leads you to believe that it was medical negligence that caused your permanent injury? Um, I don't know. I think it was because I assumed when I went to this particular doctor that they would be using state-of-the-art surgeries, uh, and they they didn't. Basically, mm-hmm. that's what the other doctor told me. Yeah. Was it a um, – let me ask you this um, – was it was it a surgery that was not approved at the time it was performed? Um, approved by me or? Approved by any sort of med- custom medical practice. For example, sometimes when we think about these things and we think about surgeries that are outdated, it's because perhaps a physician didn't know what the new procedure was and you know, the AMA or other medical physicians um, organization would say the new practice is to use the new procedure and not the old procedure. Do you know when the new procedure became? I don't even know how I would know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But your doctor told you that there was a new procedure in place at the time your surgery was performed. Yes, one that they do all the time. And your doctor did say that your particular surgery cause this permanent issue with your finger, whether it's a severance of the nerves or, you know, a deformity or another a use problem? Yeah, he, he said that it was, uh, it left scarring and that there was nothing he could do to fix it. And that's what the, excuse me, that's what the first doctor said as well. And he just told hmm. me to have a good summer. And I, what I have basically is a right hand that's kind of cupped now and I'm right-handed yeah. so I can't support myself on my hand anymore and it just it just doesn't work like it used to and it cramps all the time you know oh my goodness so I don't know what to do at this point yeah yeah so ordinarily what I do is I, I tell my clients they need to get a complete copy of that medical procedure medical records and mm-hmm. then I send that off to the medical malpractice attorney it's a very it's a specialty in Rhode Island in Massachusetts and they will review it and preliminarily tell me whether or not it's something that they can undertake. Um, that's how I handle these these cases, because I want to make sure that you're getting a proper review of those records before at least uh-huh. a preliminary review by somebody who says, yes, this rises to the level of medical negligence or not. Have you provided any attorney or medical records or you just explain the situation? Um, you know, it was a couple of years ago that I first... I dealt with the attorney with other attorneys, and yeah. uh, I can't remember if I sent them the documents, but I I have the documents. Hmm. I have okay. them. 
So yeah. Beth, you know, if you want to so, give me a call at my office, um, okay, maybe Wednesday, I'm happy to talk to you a little bit more about it and just kind of explain, but you are correct. Once the three years expires, that's, that's mm-hmm. all she wrote on your case. If there is a case and I can explain a little bit more how medical malpractice works and you know how how physicians can be held responsible or are not you know in these different types of situations all right okay thank you introducing rich valdez america at night the podcast welcome to the conversation familia a perfect blend of news and entertainment interviews and insights it's really just an expose on how messed up things are america's nighttime town hall whenever you want it's a huge problem that deserves a lot more attention rich valdez america at night follow the podcast wherever you listen All right, Beth, good question. Excellent question. First up, we have George from Gloucester and then Giovanni from Cranston. Hi, George. You're on the air with Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, just like to get your opinion and feelings on trusts, uh, who needs them, what the benefits are, uh, just some general kind of information. Okay. Well, what is got, what's piqued your interest about trust? Let's start there. Well, uh, I'm retired uh, and just thinking about, you know, I've got a will. I've heard some people say a will is fine. Other people say you need a trust. Um, I'm just not sure whether or not I should pursue it any further. All right. So you have a will. Um, Now, do you own your own home? Yes. Do you own other property as well or or just your home? No, it's just my home, basically. Okay. So most of the time, so let me, I'll just explain it this way, so that way you kind of have a good understanding. So many times when you have a bank account, a life insurance, a 401k, an IRA, you can name a beneficiary. Now, if you name a beneficiary on any of those accounts, it goes to that person. So there is no, um, there is no um, gap in where it's going to go. In other words, gotcha. you could write in my will, I leave everything to my spouse. But if you have a child named as a beneficiary on your 401k, that's where it's going to go. Right? So okay. the issue becomes a lot of times because we can name beneficiaries on a lot of accounts, investment accounts, 401ks, IRAs, bank accounts, right? All of that can be named as a beneficiary, but we can't name a beneficiary on our home. If our home is in our name alone, when we pass away, the purpose of probate is to make sure that title changes from you because you're no longer here to whoever you're leaving your home to. Now, what that means is that when you pass away, basically a court is established, the probate court, to basically say, yes, you are no longer here. Here is your will. And this says where it's going to go. Now, probate is a six-month process. So from beginning to end, it's six months, which means that sometimes your ears can be tied up by claims of creditors. They can be tied up by perhaps a claim from Medicaid. Um, or they could be tied up because they're fighting one another or other people can come and fight. So many times folks will use a trust 
to say, uh, basically, I'm naming a beneficiary for the purpose of making sure my house goes to that person without probate. No claims of creditors, no fighting, no must, no fuss. It goes to that person just like everything else I own. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, are there any tax advantages to uh, to a trust versus uh, just leaving it uh, to a beneficiary, et cetera? No, no. Matter of fact, I mean, there, there isn't going to be any income tax consequences or anything like that or gift tax consequences unless your estate is significantly high. Um, and um, as far as when you pass away, your children or your beneficiary would still receive what's called the stepped up basis, which means that they won't have any taxes on the inheritance either. So no taxes when you do it. You don't have to file annual taxes for the trust. And when you're no longer here, whatever they inherit doesn't have taxes either. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. That makes it quite a bit clearer to me. Thank you. Yeah. Good question, George. Excellent question. Thanks for calling in today. I appreciate it. Thank you. So um, next up, we have Giovanni in Cranston. Hi, Giovanni. You're on the air with Stephen. Hey, Jake, do we have uh, Giovanni there? Yes, hello, Stephen. Oh, hi, Giovanni. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. So I've got an issue with the local credit union, and I don't know what to do. About two months ago... um, I received a uh, statement saying that they uh, debited my account three times for $5 each um, because they have returned mail. In other words, evidently they sent me an advertising flyer, and they said it was sent back to them by the post office. And they said every time that happens, they're going to debit my account $5, which they did. Now, An advertising flyer? Yeah, which I never, which by the way, I never requested. But it goes beyond that. Um, okay. I get my monthly statement from the same bank every month without question. I've been living here for 25 years. There's no problem with my address. Dress. So I talked to the manager. I had to jump through hoops, and I complained and I yelled. She goes, "Okay, we'll reverse it." So they reversed it. Um, the very next month. The same thing started to happen all over again, a $5 charge. So I called. I says, can I see a piece of this mail that's being returned? They says, well, no, we don't keep it. That's that's really weird. Uh, without getting into yep. where you do your banking, um, you know, maybe you just want to try a different bank. I mean, I, they're going to send you advertising. And you don't want the advertising or it goes back as spam or whatever the problem is. And they charge you five bucks for the advertising. Are you sure they're not charging you five bucks for your statement? No, I no, I, I asked them that. And because yeah. sometimes like, they now the charge thing. you like I, I like to get everything. Pa- I'm a paper person still. So I like to get everything in paper. And I, I've noticed that a lot of the banks, they the enticement is that they won't charge you the five bucks if you agree to take an e-statement and not a paper statement. So I've always been more along the lines of a paper statement, and I know I have to pay that fee to get a paper statement. Oh yeah, no, I, I would have I would have uh, walked away from that if that was the case. I mean, um, 
so that's what they're telling me. And um, when I complained and yelled and everything, they reversed it all. But then the very next month, it started all over again. Ah, uh, you know, I, I might say your best bet might be to just maybe just open a new account with somebody else and ask them if they have this process. It just sounds I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I wouldn't be happy with that. But what, why is your mail being returned? Have you checked with the post office? Did you go to the local post office and say, wait a minute, oh, yeah, the bank's no, telling they, me they, my mail? No, they say there's no problem. But but again, the, the catch here is that the interesting part is the statement itself has never not been delivered. It's always been delivered. It's just whatever advertising baloney they're sending you. Whatever they're saying, even if that's true, I don't know. Now, I, I spoke to another bank I have an account in yesterday, just yesterday morning, Saturday. And yeah. they told me that um, I asked them about it. They said, well, look, um, if it happens in their bank, um, they contact, you know, the, the customer one time to see if they had a change of address. You know, they fix the change of address and go go forward. But they they found they had the same uh, reaction as you do. They can't believe it. Oh, uh, well, Giovanni, I might say uh, time to change banks. I know it might be a pain in the neck, but at least if you open a new account and then start getting your direct deposits there and change banks. I mean, uh, you know, if they can't fix it, that, that doesn't seem right to me either. I wouldn't want to pay $60 a year for returned advertisements. So I agree well, with yeah. you. And not only that, I'm sure I'm not the only. If they're doing that to me, how many hundreds of thousands of other customers are they doing that to every month? Right. And I'm sure there's some fine print somewhere, Giovanni, when you open the account or whatever happened, they had you sign something in fine print on the third page that says they're allowed to do this somehow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's always yeah. the that little fine print. Right, right. Okay, Stephen, thank you for your input. Appreciate it. All right, Giovanni. Thanks. Good question. Here we go. This is an interesting question, and this happens more often than you know. All right. Uh, individual came in to see me. Um, they had a credit card from a very long time ago. And at some point, I guess they moved, they lost track of it, whatever it is. Well, it's been about 10 or 12 years. And all of a sudden, they get a thing on their, uh, dub, on their pay stub. And it says, wage garnishment. And th so I guess they go to HR and they say, Hey, you know what? What is this? Uh, weren't you going to tell me about this? And HR goes, "No, we whenever we get a wage garnishment, child support order, whatever it is, we have to pay it. So we just take it out of your pay. So they're taking twenty five percent of his gross pay every week. So he starts doing some investigating, and he says, "Well, wait a minute." He says, um, "When? Where did this come from?" Like, and then he he remembered that. Oh, I had this must be a credit card I had all that years ago, except it was only for three thousand dollars. And now it says twelve thousand dollars on the wage garnishment. That's because it's been accruing interest. You see, that was part of my answer to him. But now he's saying, well, what do I do? And I said, well, first of all, where did they sue you? And apparently they sued him in New Hampshire. They got the judgment in New Hampshire and then they took it and filed it in Rhode Island. And then put a wage garnishment on him. And I said, well, what 
you know, we have to look into this. If you do you want to fight it, what is it you want to do? And he said, well, you know, I, I may owe the money, but I don't think they have a judgment against me because by law, I don't think they do. So this comes down to a very fundamental part of every process, whether it's civil, whether it's criminal, the right to due process, which means the right to have an opportunity to be heard, basically. It's a constitutional right, and we have that right. So in this case, what is the answer for this particular individual? Well, the first question is whether or not the summons that was served in New Hampshire was actually served on him. So I told him he needs to get contact New Hampshire, request a copy of the file and see if the summons was served on him. Or was there some sort of alternative means of service? For example, maybe by advertising or tacking. Then the second question is, if that's not your signature on there and that you weren't living there at the time they sued you, then the summons may be wrong, which means that they don't have a judgment. It doesn't mean the debt goes away or the case goes away. It just means that they don't have a judgment. But you have to fight that. You have to assert your rights now in court to say, I was deprived due process because I was never served. And in that vein, in that situation, you may be able to undo the wage gun. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to undo the whole case because you may still owe the money. But maybe you get leverage to try to negotiate the case or settle the case. Because right now you have no leverage because they have a wage garnishment. So this is something that sometimes people don't know. Now, I find this happening a lot with tax lien cases. I represent a lot of individuals that have tax lien cases where their house is sold at tax sale. And I find that many times, um, for example, Let's say you own a home with two pieces of uh, two pieces of real estate, which are next door. One is your driveway and one is your house. It's very common in Rhode Island and Massachusetts to own property like this. And now all of a sudden you you've been paying, you know, you pay your mortgage, you pay your taxes and years go by. And all of a sudden there's a letter tacked on your door that your, your land was sold at tax sale. Well, the municipality has an obligation to make sure they notify you of the tax sale. But if they're mailing the tax sale notice to an erroneous address, a land address, and that gets returned to them, you never received notice. And you have the right to contest the issue of notice. And I see that arising a lot in tax lien cases where for a few thousand dollars, somebody could lose their home. But, you know, so what is this? What is the overarching thing here? The overarching theme between these two very different types of cases is you have to be relatively um, um, invested. You have to be prudent in how you manage your personal affairs. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if you're in a situation where your house goes to tax sale, you definitely want to contact an attorney right away if you find out because you want to interrupt the process. But more importantly, if your taxes are being paid every year, you want to make sure that your taxes are being paid. You may want to call and say, I didn't get my tax bill for the land. Okay. Or you may want to pull a full credit report and you can get it free 
there's three credit reporting agencies and you get one free credit report a year, which would tell you whether or not anybody has a judgment against you. So just doing a little, I know we don't think about these things. Like, is it really necessary? Um, You know, sometimes things don't show up that until it's after the fact, when you really find out what's happening. And so even by making sure, for example, every year you should contact your insurance agent, make sure your insurance is up to date. Maybe you need to adjust how your insurance is, um, how your property is being insured, or you need to adjust uh, the amount of insurance. Or maybe, for example, you didn't know that your car insurance was going to be canceling your car insurance. Call your insurance agent. Say, look, is everything up to date? Call the tax assessor. Make sure, look, are my taxes, you know, I paid my taxes. Now, if you only have one lot and you pay your taxes, then you know they're paid. Call, um, you know, you may want to do the free credit report from Experian, TransUnion, or Equifax. It's a free credit report. You don't have to pay anybody to do it. And they just send you a free credit report. And you can look and see, are there any judgments from old debts? Or is there anybody like weird on the credit report that I don't recognize that maybe there could be some credit fraud? So you got to be vigilant. You want to be prudent with how you manage that stuff. And lastly, and I think I, I see this so often, is you want to make sure all of your beneficiary designations are updated. You want to make sure that what if you just open the new bank account, make sure if you don't remember checking the box, who's going to get it when you're no longer here, that that box is checked. You know, one of the biggest things I see and problems that comes across the desk has to deal with the small things. For example, a bank account with maybe $10,000 in it. Maybe you have an entire estate worth, you know, a million dollars. And now you have this bank account for $10,000 that you forgot to include a beneficiary designation. Now the estate, now a probate needs to be filed to transfer that money. So these issues come about and they percolate. So just be vigilant, be prudent. And hopefully a lot of these issues can go to the wayside. In other words, they they don't become issues because you get it, you nip it in the bud. I'm just going through a variety of topics and questions. And, you know, I was looking through the Providence Journal this morning and uh, just perusing different issues. And I, I saw this um, um, article here, Rhode Island housing pre- prices hit record high in June. And by the way, it's the same for Massachusetts. Um, apparently, um, prices are still going up, even though the rates are going up because there's no inventory. And I, I think, and I was talking to my friend, Robert Wright, who's a mortgage professional, we were talking about um, different types of issues and with uh, pricing and house prices and whatnot. And, you know, he said that because the interest rates were so artificially low and they were so low for so long that many people who have a 3% mortgage rate are extremely hesitant to say, if I sell now, where do I go? So the inventory is staying very tight and it's very difficult to find a home. Now, we look at the interest rates now at 6%, 6.5%, and you say to yourself, my goodness, why are the rates so high? And if you think historically, 
right? Maybe when you got your first mortgage, the interest rates were eight, nine percent. When I, my wife and I received our first mortgage, it was through Rhode Island Housing and it was 11%. What, 1996 when we bought our first house? Uh, 11%. And then, even in, if I recall, uh, you know, I've done over, I've done probably over six, 7,000 real estate closings, commercial closings, business transactions. But even in the 2007, 2008 era, we had a situation where the interest rates were at five, six percent interest, even when they were doing those loans with um, uh, interest only and and no income verification. They were still that high, and then they, after that collapse, they proceeded to decline. But with the tightening on the lending, fewer people are eligible to purchase. But the problem is, if you sell, where do you go now? If you're going to be moving to Florida full-time, that's one thing. Maybe you want to just rent. Well, you're still going to be paying a significant amount every month to rent a house. You could be paying $2,500. You could be paying $3,000 a month. You know, all of those issues have to be in the back of your mind. What's better? Own, rent, um, you know, but even at 6% to me, <clears throat> it does not seem as if we're so out of the ballpark, but the problem is the inventory is so tight. So what was the difference between 2008 and nine and the difference between 2022 and 2023? Well, I think the real difference was and really had to play in with the idea that when they were doing those loans, <clears throat> which were called um, no income verification. OK, so you only had a state that if I bought this four hundred thousand dollar three family in Providence, <clears throat> If I bought this house, I would be able to state my income. So maybe I make $15 an hour or $20 an hour doing what I do, but then I'll also have rental income of this so that they stated income. And so what happened was obviously those incomes weren't, weren't supported when the rents disappeared and all these houses came to foreclosure. So all of a sudden we have a flood in the market. And when you have excess inventory, Prices come down. It's just supply and demand, economics. Now, with the market that we have, you really don't have that supply. And I don't see that supply lightening up either. There's no reason for that supply to lighten up. Because if you own your own home with a 3% mortgage, you may not want to throw yourself into a 7% mortgage just to buy something else. I mean, unless you're really going to be moving to a new state or a new jurisdiction. So these are issues that percolate, and I think they affect all of us, but maybe understanding a little bit uh, based on historical data that's in the back of my mind helps you understand what the changes in the market are. Now, of course, my name's attorney, Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Uh, you know, been practicing law 26 years. If if you need an attorney or if you have a question, you can always give us a call here. You can give me a call at my office at 401-490-4900, 401-490-4900. And of course, you can always find me online at SPL Law. That's SPL, Stephen Paul Levake, law.com. You'll see our website, get some good information, some doodads and maybe a little bit. It's basically an introduction to say, hey, here's a variety of areas that we practice in and that we help people with. 
For example, I've been doing estate planning and Medicaid planning for 26 years. I have a bachelor's of science in accounting from URI from 1992, which I use every day in my practice. I handle thousands of probate cases and other types of cases to help people through difficult times. That's what I do here on the show every Sunday, and that's what I do for you in my office. Of course, if you need to reach me, my office number is 401-490-4900. 490-4900. This is attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips, with signing off. Thank you for everybody who called today. I truly appreciate you. I know you appreciate me too for being here and giving you this important information every week. Listen, we'll be back next week. See you then.